Uh, Today's passage is found on page 10. We're not going to turn to it yet, but just letting you know it's found on page 10 in your order of worship. And also it's found on page 907 in that black chair Bible there in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We would love for you to have that and and take that with you. So for the month of September, one of our newer traditions that we do is we're going through our vision and values that we have as a congregation and as a church. Let me remind you what our vision is. We have a poster here for you to remind you. It's this. It's a robust church, joyfully united to Jesus, our community, and each other. And the four values we operate out of or live, grow, thrive, and go, forming this nice cycle of our life together. And the reason we do this is that our vision and values kind of determine how we act as a church. If you want to put it another way, they kind of determine the culture we have as a church. Across our denominations, most of our churches in general, actually not, not in general, they believe the same things. Now there's some specific minutiae they may differ on, but in general they believe the same things. But if you look at the churches across our denomination, there's a lot of variety and diversity of flavors, let's call it, because each church has its own unique culture of a church. And so when we're talking about our vision and values of Sycamore, we're not talking about what we believe, we're talking about how we apply and live out as a community what we believe. And culture of a church is very important because you can have a church that has wretched doctrine but a very thriving, lively, friendly culture. And you can have a church that has beautiful doctrine and is kind of prickly. And church A will be much more effective at gathering people from its surrounding community than church B. So culture matters. Culture can push people away or it can bring people in. So we want to anchor ourselves in what we as your leadership has determined. This is who we think God wants us to be. A robust church, joyfully united to Jesus, our community, and each other, where we live, grow, thrive, and go. So there's additional resources for each of these. If you're interested in this, we have these four books. This is not an assignment for you to buy four books and try to read four books in a month. Please don't hear me saying that, okay? Here's what I have in mind. As we go through this, if one of these values piques your interest, here's some additional reading material you might be interested in. This week is Grow, and it's the book in the upper right-hand corner called Gentle and Lowly. I just finished rereading this for the, I can't remember how many times, and it took me a month because it's, you want to go through it slowly and devotionally and reread sentences. So this is not like a school assignment where you zip through, okay, done, give me the pop quiz. No, this is take this in slowly. And I want to confess, this one's probably one of my favorite books. What, what Dane Ortland, who's also a PCA pastor, what he has done is he's taken basically a couple of really well-known Puritan writers, and he took their thousand pages of their collected works, and he kind of zoomed it down to very digestible stuff. So I mean this as a compliment. There is very little new information in this book. It's taking good old-fashioned Protestant Reformed Puritan theology and it's giving it new fresh life for 2023. I cannot recommend this book higher. And here's how I can do it one more time. I have 10 free paperback copies in my office. So if you will come to me, if you will look me in the eye and say, I will read this, then the first 10 of you that do that, I can give you a free book. All right? I want you to read this book. This book is really the basis of our culture. If you ever sit back and you're having coffee together and you're thinking, what's our new pastor's nefarious plans for take over the world? What's he really up to? It's this book. I want this book to be incarnated in our church. 
So there you go. I, I don't know how to recommend it even higher. All right, so this week we are talking about grow. How do we really get into the gospel? Treasuring the gospel. That's a new slide. Okay. Um, so what does that mean, treasuring the gospel? It means that the gospel soaks into our pores, soaks into the very pores of our heart so that we feel and appreciate God's passionate love for us. Yes, a Presbyterian pastor to a group of Presbyterians said the word feel. I know, we'll get through it together, I promise. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at a passage out of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a book that has a lot of application because it is a church in turmoil. And so Paul comes to them and he gives them a lot of, here's what the gospel should be doing to you. Here's how the gospel changes you. Here's what you're becoming in the gospel as a community. He anchors them in the truth of the gospel and he reminds them that even though you have this truth, your own frailty can limit the gospel itself. So with that in mind, let's look now at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. Again, it's on page 10 in your order of worship, and it's on page 907 in that chair Bible there. <clears throat> For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. Now, this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for condescending to us in speech that we might know you as you wish to be known. And so, Lord, as we go into your word today, we pray that once again you would do your work of helping us cast aside our assumptions about you and that we would submit to how you have actually shown yourself to be. And Lord, show us your truth for our growth and for our transformation. We pray this by your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so where we're going to go today, again, is grow. This is cherishing the gospel. This means the gospel soaks into the pores of your heart so that we feel and appreciate Jesus' passionate love for us. So the first thing I want to look at is, is this really a gospel treasure? Paul starts out this passage in verse 6, and he says, God has shown in our hearts to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That really is what we looked at last week, the value of live, receiving the gospel together. And we ended last week with the challenge to know Jesus as an actual person rather than the key to the Sudoku puzzle of life rather than the thing that this abstract principle that, oh, it all makes sense now. My life has meaning. I get this Christianity thing. Yes, I like this. Okay, that sounds really good, but that's an abstract principle that's not a person. And here's what I mean by that. Here's a different way to look at this, what we're going to get at today. If you could stop 
a New Testament believer on the street and say, what do you call yourself? Like we call ourselves Christians. What do you call yourself? In the New Testament, they didn't call themselves Christians. In fact, that word Christian appears three, maybe four times in the New Testament, and it's always pejorative. Instead, these first generation believers would have called themselves, well, I'm in Christ. What are you? I'm in Christ. We call ourselves Christians. They would say, I'm in Christ. And there's a difference here in that the New Testament believers did not separate the benefits of Jesus from Jesus himself. And there's a tendency when we call ourselves Christians and have that mindset to do just that. Christianity is not an abstraction that we possess. Here's what I mean. We Christians, we don't have justification. By faith, we are united to Jesus, who is the justified one. We Christians do not possess adoption. By faith, we are united to Jesus, who is God's unique son, and in him we are adopted. We don't have those things. That's an abstract religious system. We have Jesus. He is the treasure And the idea of growing means we start to really recognize that because typically as we come in under live, we're kind of agreeing with a principle and a system that makes a lot of sense. We're, We're confessing this system, but then we grow to see that we're in this relationship with a person. And so if you're here today and you're not sure if you've done that, let me tell you, let me implore you, please, place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a person today, right now. You can repent of your sins. You can repent of all the things you look to for security and safety, and instead you can flee to Jesus as he's offered in the gospel. You can place your faith and trust in him as the resurrected Lord. He will set you free, and in him you can be justified before God, adopted as his son. And guaranteed that one day, someday, you will be raised with him. If you haven't done that, you can do that now. But if you are like me and you know you've done that, there's a chance that we can abstract Jesus from his benefits and so we miss the treasure. Here's how it worked for me. Maybe you can relate to this. I want to share with you a couple quick parables from Jesus. This is from Matthew chapter 13. Verses 44 and 46, Jesus tells us this, as the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This joy here, he's found something so valuable, he does whatever he can to get it. And I will confess to you, as a, as a young Christian and as a middle-aged Christian, whatever that means, hearing this parable, reading this parable, and thinking, I don't understand what's so valuable. I don't really treasure the, I'm glad I'm a Christian, and I am a Christian, and I, I'm, I'm grateful, but I gotta confess, I don't really treasure this. I, I don't resonate with what Jesus is saying here. Because see, if justification, being made right with God, and adoption 
etc. If those things are abstract principles that I hold, that I have, that I possess, then I ought to grow in them. And so becoming more of a disciple, growing in my faith means somehow, I never say this of course, but I act like it means becoming more justified. God is not quite pleased with me as a baby Christian, but when I'm mature, he'll really be pleased with me. Or I got to grow in my adoption because I have these things, so I got to have more of them. And so what happens is my interior life becomes filled with all sorts of oughts and shoulds. Grow, work harder, be better. See, but the Bible doesn't call us to do that. The Bible calls us to know more of Jesus, to be in him. This pressure of oughts and shoulds tarnishes the treasure of Jesus. And Paul says we do that because we are jars of clay. Look with me at verse 7. Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So Paul says, okay, go down to the corner store there in Corinth where they have those like, you know, three for a denarius little cheap clay lamps. Get those. Go to your treasure box in your house. Pull out your gold, your silver, and your copper coins and start putting them in that little thing. That's our new safe deposit box right there. And what he's getting at is our frailty. We are such little, brittle, frail jars of clay, but we still have this treasure in us, in our frailty. See, what he's getting at is this, is we don't grow because in our frailty we fail to grasp who God is in himself. Even while being faithful in worship, even while attending Sunday school, even while knowing lots of Scripture, in our frailty, we don't actually know God as He is. And we will not grow. We will not treasure the gospel until we do. So for us to grow, we need to be reintroduced to God. And here's what it gets down to for most of us. Deep down, on a fundamental level, we think, God begrudgingly saved me. We're constantly disappointed in ourselves as Christians, and we project our own hardness back onto God. Here's how a more godly, wise, and well-studied pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, here's how he says it. He says this, while often dormant in our souls from time to time, the thought will erupt that perhaps the Father himself in himself does not love us as the Son does. Such a disposition leads to a spirit of suspicion and even of bondage, not one of freedom and joy. Or the book for this week, Gentle and Lowly. Here's how Dane Ortland says the exact same foible. He says this, perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today. Next slide, please. There we go. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and to keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. See, until you believe in God as he is, you won't grow. Let me give you a test, okay? I have a couple test questions up on a slide. Could you put the test slide up for me? There we go. Don't, this is not emotional streaking time. Do not raise your hand. But you're gonna resonate with one of these statements more than the other. One of them is utter hogwash. 
has an old-fashioned term in it. And one of them is completely biblical, glorious truth. And for a very long time in my Christian life, even after I was ordained, my heart would gravitate towards the first statement, which is satanic junk that smells like smoke. God does not love you because Jesus died for you. The gospel was God's idea. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together came up with it. God loves you, therefore Jesus died for you. The Father's heart is not cold and distant to you. Yes, the Bible says, well, Jesus is our advocate before the Father. Don't advocates have to, like, convince? Well, yeah, humans do, but that's not how it works. The, go- the gospel was the Father's idea, and it's his overwhelming joy and pleasure to hear the Son and say yes to the Son on our behalf. Oh, you want to grow? Repent of projecting how you would treat you onto God. You know, God actually calls us out for this. He does. Look with me at Psalm 50, verse 21. God points out this frailty in us and says this, These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was like yourself. The NSB translation says, You thought I was like you. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. See, God says, I'm not like you. Quit thinking I am. The Puritans, by the way, when I say that word, if you have any kind of negative connotation, I just want you to know that is because of that piece of terrible propaganda called the Scarlet Letter that they made you read. That book was written specifically to shame a specific community. It is not historical reality. The Puritans were great men and women anchored in the grace of God who wanted nothing more than for us to see the beauty of the gospel. So Puritan is a good word in this church, okay? So the Puritans, they defined this tendency in us, this element of frailty, they defined it as a legal spirit. What does that mean? Look with me at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. God's word says this, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Literally, what Paul says here is for all who are of works are cursed. He's not talking about what you believe. He's talking about who you are. Are you of works? Do you have a legal spirit? Because if you're an of works person, you look to your performance and you look to your failures for your status before God, not to the victory of Jesus. You project your disappointment with yourself onto God. And you assume he merely puts up with you. But if you can just learn a bit more, if you can just polish up this one area of your life, then maybe, maybe he'll smile on you that day. That is of works. It's jars of clay. It's not treasuring the gospel. The overwhelming instruction of the New Testament is to get out of ourselves and into Jesus. That's growing. When we see who God really is, we will treasure Him. And when we see Him as He is, we see that He is natural, that He's not strange. Okay, so going back to our our passage here on page 10, verses 8 through 11 show us a very robust life of joy and sorrow, of life and death as Christians. Because growing means shedding this very simplistic understanding of life. I remember one time I was in seminary 
having a conversation with a guy who who'd bought a house there in Mississippi when I was in seminary, and he had this beautiful magnolia tree out front, and it had gotten some sort of disease or something, and it had died. And he was lamenting its death because it was a beautiful tree, and it also enhanced the property value. And, and he goes, but, he goes, when, I was, he goes, when one of my family members was there, he, he looked at me and goes, Sean, they talked to me like a seminarian. Like, oh man, I'm so sorry. Because see, what happens is people have conversations with pastors and future pastors. You think you have to Jesus everything up when you talk to us, so you don't talk to us normally. And so this well-meaning person said, Oh, I'm so sorry. Who, who do you think sinned in your family to cause the tree to die? Right? We're like, whoa, hey, uh, welcome to Christianity, like Buddhism called, it wants its karma back. Um, yeah, like, no. Okay, and Jesus specifically addresses that, by the way, in one of his parables. You can look that up yourself. Um, so anyway, like, no, that is not right. But that's how a lot of us default, don't we? Remember, my, one of my grandpa-isms that I got when I would do something stupid as a kid was God's going to get you for that. Because that's the Christendom answer of a Christianized culture, right? That's not who God is. See, jars of clay like us, we need to know who is God really? What's he really like? And the Bible shows us God's real heart. One of my favorite Old Testament prophets is this guy God comes to and says, hey, I want you to marry this currently active, and she'll probably stay active, prostitute. And I want you to love her because love is a verb. You choose to do it. And that's gonna reflect the kind of marriage I'm in with my people. Oh, and when she keeps cheating on you, you have to keep loving her because that's going to reflect the kind of marriage I'm in with my people. And there's this one scene where God is going off, for lack of a better term, on his people. He's nailing them for their sins. He's calling out their failures. And he finally gets to the climax of the argument. He gets to the therefore when he's going to give the action. Here's what's going to come next. So he goes, therefore, and what do you think comes next? See, jars of clay think, oh, here it comes. Here comes the whooping. But that's not what the God of Scripture is like. Instead, Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. That word for allure can be translated entice. God says, I'm going to entice you. God says, I'm going to charm you. God says, I'm going to seduce you back to me jars of clay are really uncomfortable right now, right? <laughs> the Puritans, again, have this wonderful concept to help us get our brains around this. They talk about God's natural work versus God's strange work. Let me show you where they get this, just from three little passages in Scripture. So, first of all, is Lamentations 3.33 says, For he, the Lord, does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Jeremiah 32, I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and my soul. And then talking about judgment. For the Lord will rise up to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to work his work. Alien is his work. There's just three little verses out of a lot we could take in Scripture to get down to this point. What are we trying to say? Mercy is natural to God. Judgment and harshness are strange and alien work. Oh, deep down, do you view God as angry? Do you view God as easily offended? Is he always on edge? Is he quick-tempered? Is he unsafe? We're talking about God's disposition, which is hard for us Presbyterians. I know. 
We default to thinking of God as emotionless. We assume that growth means learning more information. We're suspicious when people tell us to have a deeper experience. We often operate, don't we, as if emotions are a product of the fall rather than rooted and are being made in the image of an emotional God. And here's a good litmus test. How much did you clinch up when I said emotional God just then? What is God's disposition? Because if we are ever to grow, we must know God as he is. What jumps out of God most freely? If you catch him off his guard, so to speak, what's he really like? What flows from him most naturally, according to Scripture, is blessing and grace and mercy to do good, to swallow us up in joy. It sounds so wonderful. Thank you for the inspiring TED Talk. But is that biblical? Well, look with me at a very famous passage. Exodus 33, verses 18 through 19. Moses makes this famous question. Please show me your glory. And glory means your significance, your essence, the rawest part of you. Who are you really? On your wedding night, you disrobe and you show each other your glory. This is it. I got nothing to hide. That's what he's asking. And God says what? How does God define his glory? Notice what he says here. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God's answer to Moses saying, who are you really? He says, I will show all my goodness to you. And then a chapter later where he actually does it, he gets even better. Look with me at Exodus 34, 6, where this event happens. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. And who is this Lord? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's self-proclamation of who he is is merciful and gracious. He doesn't say, The Lord, the Lord, exacting and precise. He doesn't say, The Lord, the Lord, disappointed and frustrated. And jars of clay act as if he actually says that, don't we? The Bible shows us that the natural state of God's heart is mercy. His glory is his goodness. And a growing Christian gets that and treasures it. Here's another way to look at it. I love this one. Dane Ortland pointed this out through the Puritans in, in the book Gentle and Lowly. I'd forgotten this. There are so many times, I mean so many times in the Old Testament, we are told God is provoked to anger. And not once are we ever told that God is provoked to mercy or grace or kindness. Because anger requires provocation, whereas mercy and love are ready to flow. Is that how you think about God? I bet most of us think of God's anger as an overfilled balloon. It's so tight you're afraid to even touch it, right? Because it's going to burst right in your face. And his mercy is like slow to build like molasses going uphill in January. Like, please, I just need a little bit of mercy. The Bible says it's the exact opposite, that his love and mercy and grace is that balloon. In fact, it doesn't even need to be provoked. You get in its presence and go, oh, you need love. Boom, I explode in your face with love, mercy, grace. He is not who we think he is. Why are we like this? Why do we do that to God? 
Because that's who we are and that's how we treat each other, isn't it? There's no slide for this, but I would invite you to turn to the inside cover of your bulletin. I believe it's page two. You can look at that, that bottom quote there right above the prayer from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Usually it's always like, when in doubt, be Mr. Darcy. This is one of the places, don't be this Mr. Darcy, okay? So what does he say? He says, I cannot forget the follies and vices of others so soon as I ought, nor their offenses against myself. My good opinion once lost is lost forever. You know we're just like that, aren't we? And we project that back onto God and assumes he treats us like we would treat us. Our natural state is strange to God. What's natural to him, mercy, goodness, kindness is strange to us. But when we know God like he is, we will treasure the gospel in its natural glory. Do you treasure this gospel? All right, let's wrap this up. So a few moments ago, we looked at Exodus 34, 6. Those of you who know the passage know that God keeps talking. There's more to the story there. So let's look at the rest of what he says when he says who he really is. Exodus 34, 7, God says this, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That kind of like tempers the good, doesn't it? Does that ruin the ride of all this love and mercy stuff? Or do we feel like quoting Taylor Swift? Like, why you got to be so mean? But see, here's the deal. Love and mercy aren't leniency. This is not God up, you know, being the big grandpa marshmallow in the sky. Oh, shucks, y'all sin all you want. I just love you. No, okay, God is not a softy. He takes sin seriously. And notice in this verse, we have that, that natural versus natural. His mercy flows to a thousand generations. Limitless, immense, but sins only flow to the third and fourth. It's like he has to be fine. I'll, I'll punish for a couple generations, but I'm really just going to go take this mercy stuff forever. So the junk that we do can absolutely mar our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren, but God's mercy can swallow up our sins as it flows on for a thousand generations. God takes sin seriously, but grace even more. And when you get that, you'll treasure the gospel. You'll grow. Because in the gospel, what we get right down, when you get right down to it, what do we see in the gospel? We see God's strange work of judgment is placed on Jesus so that we might taste his natural work of grace in Jesus. That our sins were placed on Jesus on the cross so he could be judged for them, taste the strangeness of God's wrath and curse for sin, so that in Jesus you and I could taste his natural mercy and grace and kindness. Because when we place our faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, what's true of him becomes true of us, so we're united to him and we have justification in him. We're counted as adopted in him because we have Jesus. He's our treasure, and when we treasure him, we will grow do you want to grow? See God for who he is. Treasure him in the gospel. Let's pray together. 
gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to confess right now that so often I have I've made an idol out of you. I have broken the first commandment. I have projected myself onto you and assumed that you would treat me like I tre- would treat me. Lord, would you forgive me? Lord, would you help us all to believe you when you reveal yourself to us? That as you have shown yourself to be merciful and gracious and slow to anger, that you would forgive us for assuming that you're angry and slow to be merciful. Lord, would you help us to see how beautiful you are in your natural grace and mercy? And would you help us to long for that beauty, to treasure the gospel that you've given us? And Lord, we pray for those here today who don't know you, that they have seen the beauty of this gospel treasure and that they would want that, that you would work in their hearts and cause them to confess faith in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. And Father, we pray that you would do all of this by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.